0: I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped
1: destroy a church, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I'm a theology nerd, a movie buff, an occasional preacher, and believe it or not, I'm an evangelical. Dave. One of these days.
0: One of these days. This is Veterans of Culture Wars.
1: Transic culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And today, Zach, I am very excited for uh, the show tonight or during the day or whenever somebody is going to listen to this. Um, we have a podcast, obviously, about Christianity and we both are movie buffs. So I think if we screw this podcast up, I don't know uh, what, to, what to make of us. But uh, we have a very special guest here tonight.
0: Yeah, uh, Jeffrey Overstreet is on the podcast. Uh, Jeffrey is one of the, the first people I think both of us really thought about when we started doing the podcast as somebody that we'd like to eventually have on the show. Um, he is a uh, professor at Seattle Pacific University, my alma mater uh of uh uh, creative writing and uh, cultural criticism uh uh, he helps students learn to look a little deeper at things and uh he's also a, a a novelist he has a series of fantasy novels the aurelia thread and uh for many film lovers uh with a uh background in in faith his his uh, memoir of, of movie going and faith uh, through a screen darkly is an essential text. Uh, so, welcome to the show,
2: Jeffrey. Thank you. What a privilege! It's great to be with you guys. Yeah,
1: yeah, we- I appreciate you being on. I'm a I'm a big fan of Through a Screen Darkly. Read that probably four or five years ago. And uh, my friend Rob Engel. Shout out to Rob as a listener to the podcast. Hey, uh, Rob. Have
2: You met Rob Engel? Oh, yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, he, he first gave me that book, uh, knowing I was a Christian and that I love movies. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful read. Really, really uh, loved it.
2: Thank you. I've been thinking that it's outdated now because, uh, you know, believe it or not, quite a few movies have come out in the last, what, 13 years since that book landed. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah,
0: as far as I know from Netflix, not many movies have come out before that book. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd think my, my, my student, when I, when I assign parts of it to my students, by the way, I don't like assigning my own textbook to my students. You know, I I have to assure them, A, I don't make any money when you, when you buy it for a textbook and B uh, I assign it to get a conversation going. I want them to read something and then tell me what they think. Um, But the common complaint is that we've never heard or seen, heard of or seen any of these movies like uh, Star Wars. Oh, well, anyway, (sighs) They don't know and, who Wes Anderson is, so I, I don't know. I don't know what uh, I'm doing anymore.
0: I I have watched what? several Wes Anderson movies with a fellow SPU professor of yours, uh, uh, Laura Lazworth. We 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 went to several of of his in the theaters when they'd come out. It sort of became a bit of a tradition for us. Uh, so when I went to SPU, the whole um, faith based movie industry wasn't so much of a thing do you find that your students don't know these movies because they're pretty ensconced in that world of movies or merely it's just only new things
2: only new things um they are much much more immersed in binge watching series Mm. uh much much more involved in games in fact i would say i'm i'm uh two out of three students are are going to are going to be much more familiar with much uh more invested in video games than just sitting and watching anything. It's a common complaint with them now that they don't like to just sit and watch something they want to be able to make make choices and engage um, and uh you know obscure like youtube uh series and and things uh, so uh, increasingly film is is feeling like uh, a conversation about the past uh, with them, even though new movies continue to come out. They don't go to the theaters uh, very often. I'm making huge generalizations here, but in sure. general, yeah. they don't go to the theaters unless it's Marvel. Um, or once in a while, a horror movie will come along that just strikes a chord. Like for some reason, almost my entire class got up and went out to the theater for opening weekend of A Quiet Place and I don't think John Krasinski has that much pull. So I'm trying to figure out what it was about that movie that got everybody fired up fired up if it was just the uh sort of the gimmick of the silence that the trailer made seem intriguing. I'm not sure, but um it's a science I I'm I'm learning I, I haven't quite figured out.
0: That uh, is interesting though that horror movies would be big among evangelical college students because <laughs> I mean, it, that was a world I really didn't dip my toes into until the last decade or so, I'd say. Um, and maybe well, that was because c- coming of age, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s, really started watching interesting movies in the 90s. But like the thing that my dad would have been showing the the horror movies of the era was the, the slasher stuff, which uh, to him and many evangelicals of the time would have thought of as completely disposable Junk and the things to be afraid of from a perspective of garbage in, garbage out.
2: I think you would find. I think you might be surprised um, how much the student body at Seattle Pacific University has has changed in the last um, decade. It's a much more diverse uh, group of students now. Um, and I would say a lot of the students coming from evangelical families are very, very quick to distance themselves from evangelicalism or from Christianity altogether. Mm -hmm. It's very common for me to get uh, a wave of essays in the first week, uh, where almost half of them make some gesture to just to communicate to me that their parents are religious, but they aren't, uh, which, um, Um, raises questions about the conversations they had when they were applying to SBU. I won't go there, but um, there, so, so there's a wide range. There, there are the, the young people who grew up with Christian movies. There are the young people who grew up in Christian families that had much bigger imaginations about uh, the value of art and the kinds of art that are, that are worth paying attention to. Uh, But there's also a a lot of diversity here among the students in um, the, the cultures and religions. They're, they're, their families are, are rooted in. It's become not just ecumenical as far as Christendom goes, but um, we, we have quite a few Muslim students here now, um, quite a few who will very quickly uh, identify as agnostics or atheists. Um, wow. um, it's it's changing, and uh, that is good for the conversations about art, let me tell you.
1: Uh, I, sure. I, I can imagine. Yeah, do you find in some of those essays um, of people coming from evangelical families that don't want the label or or perhaps are claiming no faith. Are are they citing, you know, stuff that they've heard in the news, you know, obviously these past couple of years in this era that we live in, has that maybe been a factor for them to challenge or question their faith, um, what they're seeing with Trump and, and the sort of political turmoil?
2: That is a huge factor for some of them. Yeah. Um, For some of them, I think there may just be a general malaise or or fatigue of culture wars um, for for some of them it may be peer pressure that i mean maybe this doesn't necessarily speak to what's going on in their hearts it may have more to do with insecurity about what their family's values might represent to others around them because it's very unpopular to use the word evangelical now I went through a phase a while ago where I was trying to come up with a new word that I wanted to replace Evangelical with for me. I had heard the edge from you 2 described as a Zen Presbyterian, I really liked that. <laughs> so I started like, how can I combine that and my love of art and my, my love of Jesus? How, how about art, art zen Is that, can, can I make that a word? art zen No, yeah. Um, Anyway, I have to I have to face the fact that I, I I grew up in an evangelical family and community and went to evangelical schools, kindergarten through graduate school. Um, you know that I'm not going to shake that word. Uh, even if I converted to Catholicism, I wouldn't shake that word. Yeah. Um, but when I I had a really interesting conversation with the author uh, Richard Rodriguez several years ago. And I, I, I told him, I was like, you know, I when I write about art or faith, I'm usually trying to push back against some of the prevailing assumptions about faith in evangelical circles. And yet my work, when it's published elsewhere, tends to get categorized under the banner evangelical. And I feel like I'm losing a lot of the people that I, I am writing for, you know, for, for whom I'm writing about art, um, for whom I would like to make the conversation about faith appealing, should I just like formally reject the label and try and get out from under it? And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, you want the label. The label is your strength. Because if you publish something that that surprises people with a new question under the banner of evangelical, you are going to challenge for them what that word can mean and maybe help recover some of what it originally originally meant um redeeming the term and uh, I mean, yeah. paraphr- I'm paraphrasing dramatically but that was that was his sentiment and response and as a writer he lives on these borders you know he is he is Catholic he is gay he is American he is Mexican he is um conservative in some ways and liberal in others and he he's learned to work that um, I thought that was a really interesting answer and I still wrestle with it
0: yeah that made me think uh did you see feels good man the the documentary about matt fury the creator pepe the frog
2: no no i didn't
0: oh that was one of my favorite movies this year um
2: wow okay i'll put it on my list
0: you know it was it was something that had deep personal resonance for him this character uh born out of a lifelong fascination with frogs in particular and he goes through all the things he'd drawn over the years but it really was representative of a lot of stuff that he felt was really close to him. And, and when the extremely online community started using the imagery for memes and things at first was, it was rather benign and he was just amused by the popularity of it being used in other ways. And then when it became taken over fully as a alt-right symbol of hatred and pro-fascism, it was deeply traumatic to him. And there's, there's, a part of the film where, where he's on a crusade to try to re redefine it back to what it is, as this positive thing. And it's a fruitless attempt going up against the tidal wave of internet trolls that have claimed it for their own. And I feel like less so than five years ago, uh, even, the term evangelical feels less neb- nebulous now. It feels like it's been allowed to be defined more concretely to most people by what we've seen under Trump.
2: Yeah, it's a shame that it's calcifying in that way. Um, you know, as a as a you know as a professor at an evangelical university, we we put a lot of energy into reminding people of our Free Methodist roots and reminding people that right. Free Methodism is a social justice movement. Uh, Methodism. Had gone so far as to charge charge admission to to pews in the church based on proximity to the front of the church, so wow. the so the poor were pushed to the back or even out of the church. And free Methodism was literally free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you could sit anywhere, and uh, I mean that was just one one aspect of its its um, social justice focused um movement but i'm you know i i I always sort of flinch to to use the word pride in that context but i i'm very proud of that i'm very i'm very let's say i'm very glad to um uh, be a part of how that movement continues now um and hopefully that is not um um the opposite of evangelical. Hopefully, hopefully that is that that can still that can still be a part of the conversation.
1: Yeah, it seems like, and that's one of the things we wrestle with on this podcast. And and Zach and I are in different places on the use of the label. and And the thing is, I can completely understand where Zach and and those who don't want to use the term anymore are coming from. Absolutely, but I think I feel um, I think I feel your tension and wrestling match with wanting to redeem the term and and connect it to something that that goes back to the beautiful things that we find in scripture and in the person of of Jesus um and i'm I'm hopeful we can do that but I you know I don't know if it can be done at this moment I, I think there's there's so much darkness I think um, evangelicals have focused so much on spiritual aspect which is good but have ignored the social justice that you have talked about just for a long time, at least, you know, a lot of the mainstream and more conservative evangelicals have ignored the racial justice and care for the poor and those, those types of things.
2: Well, you see it, you see it happening. I mean, just today on Twitter, I I saw it happening all over the place over the word conservative. You know, people Mm -hmm. saying, I am a true conservative and any, any Republican who, who sticks up for whatever sparked the insurrection uh, is, as far as I'm concerned, an, an enemy of the people. Um, people being very quick to try to take what they, the terms that represent what they believe in, and 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 protect them against the toxicity of what's happening right now. Kathleen Norris uh, wrote a whole book about this. I mean, she has a book called Amazing Grace. You might know it. It's basically a like a glossary of of vital terms uh, in Christian history, like uh, revelation, uh, sacrament uh, et cetera. right, right down to words like silence. And she writes a little personal essay for each word with the sole motivation of reclaiming what that word should mean in, in spite of all the ways it's been abused, uh, and distorted over the years. So, right. uh, I, I think that's a valiant effort. Um, and yeah, there may be times when we have to just sort of put, put one of those terms away. Um, but et- etymology is important and I'm, I'm, very reluctant to give up on a word
0: yeah i remember in the when, when i was at spu in the early 2000s i, I remember christ follower being a, a popular phrase people were, were using Still more is. and more yeah and and you know there's a very a very blue leg jazz sort of perspective on things and <laughs> and and i always felt that that was silly because it's distancing oneself from the whole history of the church warts and all and and i feel like that's part of why it's i i don't I, I couldn't say that I'm an evangelical now because I'd have, it, it's, it's that or nothing. I I can't yeah. go with a different word. And part of the last four years has been wanting to say, yeah, I mean, that's me, but like those people, they can't be, they, they can't be in the group. Like there's no way that Trump is a real Christian. And, um, yeah. and now I'm like, maybe he is, he, he shows no fruit. <laughs> <laughs> but, See, I, but I for feel all that I way know about, maybe he really is I mean what I do feel that you have way to about believe
2: denominations I mean I feel that in, in a way, I feel that way about denominations, you know for I grew up Baptist and I was very suspicious of all the other denominations, and then I went through a period of sort of distancing myself from any any organized church, and then I started realizing the the flaw in thinking I could follow Christ and yet distance myself from Christian community. Uh, and I started attending a Presbyterian church and it was kind of like, Oh, okay, I identify much more with this. They like the arts here. Um, yeah. and signed on the dotted line, you know, joined that church, and then uh, 17 years later, walked into an Episcopal church and was like, Oh my goodness! And all my Catholic friends are going, Come on, come yeah. on, yeah. You're, getting, you're getting warmer. <laughs> um, and and I just started bristling at that because I was like, Wait a minute, in the arts, I I can find the glory of God in a very particular way in jazz and in blues and in R&B and in hip-hop and in classical and in rock. Why do I have to sign on the dotted line of a denomination when when each denomination has its own sort of dialect within which certain things can be said better than elsewhere? But why limit yourself to just one? And that, that has led me back again and again to the moment when to to the transfiguration when these disciples are with Jesus and they have this profound experience with Jesus on the mountain, right? They see him talking with, with Moses and Elijah. And they think, they they say, let's build a tent. This is where it's happening. This is the place. And Jesus was like, dude, that's not what it's about. Um, I am on the move and this can happen anywhere. We're not, we're not building a camp here. We're not building a compound um you can't tell me where i can and cannot be and that story is on my mind a lot these days because it's like maybe maybe the problem is whenever we begin to think we've arrived you know we've we've got the concepts down we've got the vocabulary we've got the place we've got the denomination we've got the political party we've got the label as soon as that happens, God's like, "Watch this. <laughs> I am gonna, I am gonna shake that up, and you're gonna realize I'm bigger than that. Uh, that that love is a verb, not a noun. Well, I guess it's yeah. a noun, but it's but it's more a verb. God is more a verb than a noun.
1: Yes, thank, talk thank you, DZ talk. Say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you, you
0: said uh, um, about trying to say where Jesus can and cannot be. Bring, brings me to one of the things we we're wanting to, to discuss tonight is, is the whole concept of trying to categorize art as sacred or secular, which I don't think many people outside of Christianity are all that concerned with that distinction. Uh, but within the church, a lot of effort goes into trying to say, yep, this is, this is stuff for us. This is God sanctioned, or this is stuff that allows us to connect with God, because it is explicitly christian you know if it's music the lyrics mention jesus if it's a movie it's about a family who who are christians or about a a pastor something very very explicit the christ figures are super obvious um the uh and i I actually uh, uh laura lasworth actually invited me to give a a a presentation about this topic about a year after I graduated from SPU to one of her um, just, you know, introduction to art classes. And I got, I got so excited about it. I like made a mix CD of all of these like non-Christian songs, (laughs) you know, uh, that I felt I had had a transcendent experience listening to that, that felt like a religious experience. Something that to me was an example of a, secular thing that has the the same appeal as anything sacred, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I, I almost got in big trouble about that because <laughs> the last song I put on was Lou Reed's street hassle, which, <laughs> which is a very long and, and beautiful song uh, about a, a pair of lovers that at the beginning of this song, there there's this repeated phrase, let's, sli- let's uh, slip away and it's let's, let's, get away from everybody and 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 have sex together and by the end of the song one of them is dying and it's why did you slip away and the depiction of the actions that they uh, partake in is uh fairly explicit um, so I, I think maybe that's why i wasn't asked back but i remember i remember like after giving this 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 presentation to these you know 18 year olds and opening up the floor for questions. Uh, the, the question that I most remember was uh, Do you think Switchfoot sold out now that, <laughs> now that they're on a, a secular label? <laughs> oh, my
1: goodness. And, oh, and that, I
0: had
2: to be like to Amy Grant. Yeah.
0: I've, I've yeah. never heard Switchfoot. Sorry. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that blew their minds maybe more than anything that I was trying to blow their mind with. Because as a Christian, how could you have not listened to Switchfoot? But uh there was a there was a little tweet going around this week that people were responding to uh saying, you know, name what was the exact how did they Yeah, what's what's a song or album classified as non-religious that you experience as sacred? And this works for film as well, any art. But uh, your response was any music actually classified as non-religious is a flagrant demonstration of closed-mindedness all art is an act of faith requiring both discipline law and grace. So my answer is all of it. And, uh, but especially this, and you shared a gif of Kermit, the frog, uh, <laughs> singing rainbow connection at the beginning of the Muppet movie, um, which I think is beautiful. And I, I definitely feel that, uh, especially in the reprise at the end, uh, as the actual rainbow comes down on them.
1: um, he has Kermit in his office right behind him.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they For if the... they could see what oh, we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Kermit is sneaking up over the back of my uh, my recliner back there. And right behind him, there's a framed copy of the Muppet movie soundtrack. Uh, right underneath. Uh, yes. Yeah, right there with John Williams' Raiders of the Lost Ark soundtrack. And uh, yeah, yeah. All my favorite things. Yeah.
1: Cool. Um, so about the, the sacred and the secular. Because I imagine when you were growing up as a Baptist? uh, What was was their approach to movies or art in general? Like, what what were the messages that you received uh, growing up in that environment?
2: Well, I've I've learned I need to make a distinction here because I tend to talk about um, the Christian community in which I grew up. And a lot of people then automatically think I'm describing my family. And then they start making disrespectful comments about my family. And I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Um, um, The The generally very conservative uh, Christian community in which I grew up and by that I mean the the Baptist Church in which I grew up and a lot of the. um, uh, The Christian community in uh, Portland Christian elementary schools junior high and high school, there was a lot of suspicion about the arts outside of. uh, The hymns we sing in church um the flannel graph <laughs> illustrations of bible stories and the the sort of typically cheesy um familiar paintings of of white jesus in a in a ray of sunshine or whatever um uh classical music got a pass um my grandfather had a classical music collection on vinyl that i would listen to under headphones as a kid and think that that was um just as good as it would get and um and i'm grateful for that um s- curiously they were they were all just fine with me uh, studying literature in school so sh- you know n- n- nobody flinched over shakespeare or anything like that but when it came to popular music um i remember um a sunday evening service where a missionary came and told us about how the the beats in rock music came came in general from Africa and were beats associated with uh, summoning evil spirits. Yeah. And so rock music was bad. That was in my um, science textbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not a far cry from the, the books about dinosaurs I had as a kid that were popular in that community that were all about how when God made the earth, he filled the ground with dinosaur bones, just just to just to see if we would believe the Bible's account of creation over the available evidence.
1: Wow. Um, so it said it was God and not Satan. I think some of them say like Satan planted the transitional forms to fool us, right?
2: I'm sure I am sure I heard that too somewhere in yeah. there. I've, I've repressed a lot of this. I remember um, Dr. Reinsma
0: <laughs> telling, telling me that, that he was taught the same thing in his like Dutch Reformed uh, church growing up. And the, the phrase always stuck with me that he said that God put the bones in the earth to confound the wicked.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So movies were right out, <laughs> as Monty <Bonnie laughs> Python would say. Um, they were, um, if you were seen coming out of a movie theater, there were, there, you know, there there could be gossip about you. Um, uh, we, you know, my family watched stuff on TV. We watched the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the Bob Newhart Show. Um, I watched Sesame Street religiously as a kid, uh, and Mister Rogers, uh, God bless him. Um, um, then I moved on to more adult things like the Muppet Show. Um, but, uh, the only movie that our family really paid attention to when I was very young was, uh, the sound of music. We'd watch that over and over every year. Um, and I, I talk a little bit about that, I think in, in, through a screen darkly. Um, do you uh,
0: recall your parents ever taking you to a movie theater when you were young? Oh yeah,
2: that we got there. They eventually realized I was not going to be, um, I was not going to be tied down. And and we went and saw, um, the first movie I saw in the theater was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, saw a bunch of animated Disney stuff. I remember the, I was crazy about the Rescuers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Muppet movie opened in, in 79. Um, I only saw Star Wars in 77 because my my grandfather and my uncle both showed interest and that kind of overruled the concerns my parents had because of what they were hearing at church, which was that it was too violent and too scary. And eventually once stuff about the force uh, sort of, you know, uh, was uh, embraced by pop culture, uh, then, then it was occultic. Uh, and so I wasn't allowed to see The Empire Strikes Back in the theater because by then everybody was sure that this was new agey. And right. um, so I, I, I experienced The Empire Strikes Back as a, as a novelization. <laughs> uh, first. I, well,
0: that's like my first experience of Indiana Jones was the point and click adventure game. Oh yeah, uh, for the DC well, and it was really difficult to beat without knowing the plot of the movie like there was things you needed to know was what's supposed to happen next that I had no context of for uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade but yeah I was trying to remember the other day what the first movie was that I saw in a theater my parents weren't opposed to that it may, be, it may have been more just their general thriftiness um, but I know well, my that was dad part wasn't too. allowed to see movies yeah. growing up Um, but he was okay with it. But I, I was trying to think, and I think the, well, two things, the first like traditional movie in a theater that I think I saw was a revival showing of 101 Dalmatians that like my, our, our like babysitter took me to when my parents were on vacation and I would have been 11, uh, no nine, sorry. I would have been nine, uh, based on what I looked up when that, when that revival screening happened, but then I remembered that the year before that is when we went to Disney World, and I have a very vivid memory of sitting in the theater there watching Captain EO. <laughs> so I think that my first movie I ever saw in a theater was a Francis Ford Coppola movie. I mean, not bad,
2: not bad uh, at all. With that's Jim that's Henson
0: amazing. involvement,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, so there was sort of a backlash. There were, there was the Disney wave and Star Wars, but then, then no Star Wars, no Indiana Jones, although I read the novel of that too. And that was actually, I mean, almost R rated. There's actually a sex scene in the novelization of Raiders of the Lost Ark Um, there. um, But then uh, in, in high school, I started having a little more freedom and running around with my friends and I started sneaking to the um, movie theater that was just a few blocks from my house that um, featured double features for 99 cents. And that's where I think Predator was the first R-rated film I saw. I snuck into that um
1: two future u.s governors in that one uh yeah <laughs> and jesse ventura yeah that's right
2: that's right <laughs> um you know and that one still kind of holds up i just read a really good essay uh, uh defending that as, as a, a lasting classic um
0: i didn't see that till a couple of years ago and it, it was better than i was expecting yeah it's yeah. it's very
1: fun it the, uh, the
0: effects that the pre the pre-cgi camouflage effect that they used
2: it was pretty cool it really is yeah, yeah. So um all of that to say that uh um you know it was it, i i think my my parents a realized that that i was obsessed uh you know i i read movie reviews constantly as a kid because that's how i could get close to the movies i couldn't see i would see the the ads in the paper or the posters and i would get curious and i would start writing stories this is how i got started writing stories I was so frustrated that I couldn't learn the stories that these intriguing pictures in the newspaper were about, that I would write stories based on the ideas I saw in those posters. Um, And so a lot of the early stories, the early fantasy stories I wrote, when I read them, I could tell exactly what movie I wasn't being allowed to see, whether it was (laughs) Jaws or Indiana Jones or whatever, um, oh, so,
0: so it wasn't like this is my idea of what Jaws is. Like it doesn't explicitly say here's here's the story Jaws. No, no, no. It no. was just it was... inspiring your own stories, right? Oh, okay. Right. You know,
2: and all artists, I think, begin with by imitating, right? Sure. So, um, but right away, though, I was, in, and maybe it was because I was eager for a way to defend my obsession but I started finding parallels between the good stories in these films and, and the Bible stories that I had been taught. And I was you know, obsessed with how much the force sounded like the, talking about the Holy Spirit or the lessons of Yoda being you know, away, put your anger. <laughs> um, uh, the, um, and the, the, the Jedi principles about um, anger, fear and aggression. Uh, sounded so much like things I'd been taught in Sunday school, and I was like, I think, I, I think this is good stuff here, um, you know. And then other things. I mean, we talked about the Rainbow Connection earlier, the song that Kermit sings, and I, I'm I'm still amazed at how much gospel I find in that in those lyrics. Um, so I think that anything that makes a story uh, strong, anything that makes a story compelling, uh, there's an element of truth in it. Uh, any work of art that draws an audience, there's an element of beauty in it. Um, not necessarily beauty meaning it's pretty, but beauty meaning it's there, there is imagination and, um, and symmetry and law and grace, if you want to use those yeah. terms, at, at work in the design. And those things, in my opinion, um, draw us because they reflect uh, the creativity of the the creator. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis says we don't create anything. We just rearrange things God has made. Uh, so anything good is good because the stuff God made has made is in there in some way. Yeah. And, I mean, to me, that's all good music. That's all good storytelling. That's all good cinema. That's all good literature. Um,
0: At the same time, that, I feel like the, those those that would enforce the barrier between the sacred and secular would say that a a, an edifying uh, a film would be one that that is the takeaway. That is the only takeaway. Like things that are outside of something that would make you draw closer to God, or or make you think about those elements are are not worthwhile. Um, but there's other experiences to be had watching a movie besides that that are that are absolutely worth having. I was listening to your latest podcast uh, today, uh, interviewing, uh, Chad Hardigan about his yeah. film, little bird, uh, little fish. Was, sorry. little, I wrote it down wrong. I don't know why. Uh, probably thinking about the microphones album, little bird flies into a big black cloud, uh, <laughs> uh, little fish. And it has, it has a lot to do with memory. Uh, a lot of things that I think about a lot, especially these last few years. Um, but one thing that stood out there is when you said you're um, at the end you, you said you're grateful for the things that make you feel more fully human after I watch them uh, such as No Man Land or The Rider and I would say that that's a different response to a film than thinking about, about God's uh, work in the world or whatever but maybe you would say that's the same
2: uh, I, pretty close um, the thing is that if a film tells you what it means, you can agree with it. If a film shows you something beautiful, your imagination goes to work and you, you are engaged and you are thinking about what it means. And I am much more likely to remember, to go on thinking about, to be influenced by things where I have had to do some work where I have had to think about what I've seen and interpret it. And that's not to say that there's no place for sermons. S- sermons are, are, are a work of interpretation. We listen to someone else's interpretation of something. Uh, and then hopefully we go and talk about it and we, we weigh it. You know, I mean, the, the scriptures tell us to test all things and hold fast to what is good. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your, of your mind. Um, we're not just supposed to accept whatever we're told, but sermons are ideally... Uh, interpretations by wise and attentive students, listeners uh, of scripture. Art is the stuff that needs interpretation. And, and Jesus did both. He, he gave sermons. Uh, but the bigger the crowds got, um, the more he preferred stories. And the stories Jesus told are not those kinds of stories where you come away with a light, nice little nugget of a lesson. The stories Jesus told got people talking and arguing and really upset people. Uh, And when they demanded to know what he meant by them, he said, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Um, The prodigal son has a million sermons about it because that story is weird. I mean, if you really read it, it's a weird story. Um, It does not tie things off neatly at the end. It ends with a question hanging in the air about what, what decision one character is going to make. Um, the, the story of the Good Samaritan was absolutely incendiary when it was told because of who was listening and who was going to be insulted by it, who was going to be offended by it and, the, and, and how they were going to respond. These were not stories with a nice, tidy little, the moral of the story is. They presented you with some confounding behavior and asked you to make sense of it and decide who do you want to identify with in this story? Uh, who do you want to be? And do you realize what that is going to ask of you if you identify with that particular character. Um, Jesus was an artist, and that's why none of the characters in his stories are Christians. (laughs) They're just just people looking at what's in front of them and making decisions for better or worse.
0: I think about the only time the Bible mentions him potentially making some visual art would be when he, he takes a stick and scrawls something with it and he does not proceed to explain everything about it
2: oh (laughs) and i I, I used to obsess over what that was i used to obsess i was like what it must be lost in translation that we don't know what he drew there increasingly what what gets my attention about that is not what he's drawing in the sand but the fact that he's he's where he is he is at the midpoint between the people throwing stones and the person being stoned and so in order to understand what he has, what he actually has to say about this, both sides have to approach him, which means wow. they have to come closer and closer together. And that's where the truth is going to happen. That's where actual communion with Jesus is going to happen. Hmm. And that's. that's really good. That that lately I've just been like, maybe that's what I've been missing all these years is it's a, it's it's about what we're going to do when he's drawing something in the sand, not about identifying whatever symbol is there, and then going and find it in the Da Vinci code or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if when you know evangelicals got really off on their approach. To art, I guess. I, I mean, we don't really know where that is, but you know, I I was a youth group kid in the 1990s. I I converted to Christianity when I was 14, mm. and immediately I was, you know, in an environment that may have been kind of like yours, although I was going to public school. But it was always, you know, Hollywood is this big, uh, evil, liberal place that is trying to brainwash, brainwash, and use propaganda to um, lead kids and anybody else astray, like if you go watch a movie. And so you had a lot of messages like that in the 1990s and carrying through to this day. And I think evangelicals viewing art like everything should be a sermon. It has to be edifying and point to some direct kind of thing in the Bible, I think really has made us impoverished in approaching art and also has led to this really bad movies such as god's not dead which has got to be probably one of the worst movies i've ever seen only seen the first one um but we just have you know i remember evangelicals would talk about profanity and like oh that movie had so many uses of the f-bomb or whatever and of course sex scenes were out uh people would say i love that movie except for that one scene but then um I think I heard you on another podcast recently or Young Adult Movie Ministry, uh, they were talking about um, Braveheart and they're saying evangelicals have no problem with explicit violence, but sexuality, language, and some of the other stuff, if it's not a sermon, that's going to be a huge problem in consuming that art or or interacting with that art.
2: Yeah, I think it's... uh, um, There's a lot of mystery... (laughs) when it comes to uh the subject of sexuality um with violence it's easy to say well they were fighting for the right thing although i I think it gets like that's uh i have a hard time with that explanation when i read the scriptures um when i see jesus response to violence uh violence committed in his name um but uh yeah in general i think evangelicals tend to be far more comfortable with violence um for a good cause uh and that I think that's a shame and that leads to a lot of destruction in the world, but I think they're very uncomfortable with the subject of sexuality because it is so ambiguous. It is so mysterious. It is, um, and it, it, everyone carries some amount of, of shame or, um, fear, uh, when it comes to that subject. And so any, any work of art that dares to, um, um, that invites us into that conversation that that's perceived as a threat. Um, and I, I suspect that the wariness about that subject has a whole lot to do with fear, fear of exposure, fear of being, uh, of, of one's own passions, um, yeah. questions, fears, indiscretions being revealed, uh, than it is, uh, what, what, it, how it's usually described, which is, oh, that's dirty or that's inappropriate. Um, But yeah, that's probably a subject for a whole other show. Exactly. (laughs) That would be a deep dive.
0: yeah uh, you, you you reminded me dave in in, in talking about uh evangelicals fear of, of various types of content being in movies that although my my dad was pretty good at at uh, at seeking out artistic interesting films small films he loved Peter Weir um, oh yeah Australian stuff in Brent general so uh, I. I mean one of the basically I started getting to watch R-rated movies when I went to him when I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 and said, I think I'm ready to watch R-rated movies now. And I meant like Terminator. And he showed me the Year of Living Dangerously and the Killing Fields. And wow. and both of those are really heavy.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh years later at um at the Seattle international film festival at the Harvard exit, I was able to take him to see the year of living dangerously. And that was a really wonderful moment. But the the one movie that I recall him having the most negative visceral response to was like 25 minutes of the big Lebowski and the amount of cursing in it, he declared in his exact words, it damaged his soul.
2: (laughs) Yeah. 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 And as somebody
0: who uh, several years ago, you and Matt Zoller Seitz had a phenomenal uh, conversation uh, posted uh, on on both of your blogs. We'll link to it in in the show notes about the Coen brothers and the the faith that imbues their movies, the interest in spiritual matters and and God and all of that. And um, so you must have seen The Big Lebowski
2: how, oh, yeah. How's your soul
1: does? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that conversation was originally published at IndieWire. And then uh the column that was that it was a part of um sort of became a part of their archives, and it's really hard to find now. And if you dig it up there, the formatting has gone all wonky. So um I I, I, I got permission to sort of restore it and republish it at lookingcloser.org. But that that was Matt's idea. Matt zoller Seitz is one of my favorite film critics and I think I think it's absolutely just right and good that he was the person chosen to to replace Roger Ebert at Roger Ebert.com. Uh really, really remarkable critic. And he as I understand
0: this, it, that was one of the last pieces that, that Roger read before he passed, right?
2: I I I eventually learned that from from Matt himself. Uh, yeah, yes. I, I was that. thunderstruck by that. That's um,
1: that's amazing. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I never, I never met Roger Ebert. I never corresponded with him. I, I deeply regret that. Um, and was really regretting that uh, around the time that he passed. And uh, then eventually that uh, Matt let that little detail drop in a conversation. And it just kind of blew my mind, but um, that conversation was a lot of fun. It really was a conversation. We just kind of started chatting late at night online and uh, I, he, he, he was like, I really want to do this. I really want to have a dialogue and publish it. And we got into the dialogue and I forgot that this was an article. Uh, <laughs> and we were just sending these big blocks of text back and forth because we were just so excited about the ideas. And then it was like, oh, right, we're publishing this. And there it was. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the, on the issue of language, whether it's the Big Lebowski or, or one of my all-time favorite films, Midnight Run, uh, uh, which I think probably set some kind of record for quite a few of those words. Um <laughs> Uh, or any Martin Scorsese film, you know, I, I struggled with that, that question, that subject for a long time, because I really believed that there were, you know, there were a lot of bad words that I shouldn't say. Uh, And then I, I read this amazing essay by an educator from um, I think Vancouver, BC uh, named Barbara Pell called should Christians read dirty books. And the essay is about the, the concept of dirty and she talks about profanity there. And she says that she, if I remember right, I'm sort of paraphrasing. She said that her perspective on that changed when she talked to a social worker from another part of the world, uh, someone who had been working with, uh, in, in, in a context of extreme poverty, who said that um, most of the time, Christian discomfort with profanity and efforts to distance themselves from it has more to do with discomfort with the poor than discomfort with those words. Uh, Many of those words have become blunt instruments that are used by, well, people use blunt instruments when they aren't getting other people's attention, when they are, are in deep need and crisis and in a state of desperation, start striking things, start marching, start shouting, To draw attention to where there is real suffering real hurt and so though our aversion to those words in the communities where i grew up uh, were a convenient way of dismissing ourselves from forums from from communities from contexts in which there was a lot of pain in which there was a lot of suffering this whole thing about how if you hear the word you're automatically just going to start saying it all the time was a convenient way of scaring people about bad words. So, you know, I, I would, when I was writing movie reviews for Christianity Today, um, I, I got letters like this all the time, but I saved one in particular from, from this um, sweet lady who didn't like the fact that I had reviewed a Martin Scorsese movie, much less gone to see it, even though that was my job. She said, you know, if, uh, if anyone ever approached me using language like they use in that film, I would remove myself from the situation in Christ, and then she signed her name. I remember thinking, actually, Christ would not remove himself from the situation. He would want to know what the words were representing. He would want to know what was causing those words. And this applies so, so directly to a lot of evangelical responses to the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, It's very easy to look at an extremist in that movement and say, well, see, obviously they are unhinged. We've got to stay out of this, rather than actually investigating to find out the causes of the pain that lead to a protest, the causes of the pain that lead to the shouting. And I heard again and again and again growing up, uh, as, as Christians in my community looked at protests, I just don't understand why they have to yell. I'm like... If somebody ran over your foot, you'd yell. Yeah, um, That's what pain sounds like. Yeah, and we are supposed to run toward that if I read the scriptures correctly. We are supposed to be fearless and run toward it, not remove ourselves from the situation. How does this lead back to the Big Lebowski? I'm not quite sure. But well, it leads back are, to Roger Ebert.
0: <laughs> It leads back to Roger I just Googled it because a few phrases popped in my head, and it turns out it's a quote from Roger Ebert, but he says, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. Yes. And to look at a Black Lives Matter protester and be unwilling to understand anything about their life and their situation and why these things are deeply important to them is to be unwilling to engage in an empathetic way with people outside yourself. And movies, I, I, I was writing down various questions uh, that I had for you, and, and one had to do with, with empathy. Um, I was I was thinking about the idea of escapism, mm-hmm. how it, I remember first getting into serious film, how we could be so dismissive of normal moviegoers as merely being escapists. They just want to, you know, nowadays you would say, people that generally just want to go see the superhero stop the world from exploding. Um, and, and that they're ignoring their troubles from doing that. Um, but a movie that makes us feel more fully human as, as you were talking about on the podcast earlier uh, would be one that shows us what it's like to live as someone else. And maybe transcendent art is empathetic escapism <laughs> that it's getting outside of ourselves in order to get into somebody else's perspective and point of view and lived experience
2: yes um well i mean that whole uh, that that wonderful uh, atticus finch quote right from um uh, to kill a mockingbird about uh, not knowing a person till you've walked a mile in their shoes or i'm getting botching the quote but you you know the one i mean that um art enables us to live all kinds of lives and uh uh frederick Beekner says if we are to if we are to love our neighbor uh, we must first see our neighbor with our imaginations as well as our eyes that is to say like artists love is the frame we see them in uh, in order to love our neighbor, we need to, under, we, we need to attend to our neighbor. You know, that in the movie Lady Bird, um, the, the nun, who is the principal of the school that Lady Bird attends, um, uh, reads her, her essay condemning life in Sacramento as just being unbearable. And the nun says, I, I love, and there's so much love in this essay. And, and Lady Bird says, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, you give such passionate attention to the details of this place. You really notice it and and aren't love and attention the same thing if we are to love our neighbor we need to attend to our neighbor in such a way that we can understand through the gift of the imagination what life must be like for them and so increasingly i am uh focusing you know the syllabuses i put together for classes that that engage with film uh, I'm trying to introduce students through film to experiences unlike their own. If it's a very diverse class that can be challenging, but that sure. might open it might open up some understanding for half of the class about the other half of the class. Um, whether that's about religious belief or a cultural heritage or uh, whatever part of the world they're from, um, uh, an, an economic experience. Um So I think that, yeah, um, escaping into empathy, um, escape may sound like you're trying to deny something about your experience, but no, if you escape, that implies there's a jailer. That implies there's a form of imprisonment. So escapism uh, should be a rewarding thing. Tolkien had a lot to say about this. Hmm. You know, he would say that um, the... I think what you're what you're thinking of, what you're wary of, is what Tolkien described as the flight of the deserter, uh, deserting reality, deserting truth. Watching stuff that is such a distortion of truth, you know, it's it, it maybe it gives you the some nice feeling. It it well this this brings us back to the subject I'm discussing with my class this week, the art of Thomas Kincaid. This is sentimentality. It's a misrepresentation of the truth to show us only those things that give us good feelings. And and what that does is it makes us, renders us less capable of dealing with the real world. It renders us more likely to withdraw from things that make us uncomfortable, and thus we withdraw from the poor, thus we withdraw from any real engagement with pain, Um, thus we withdraw from anything that isn't familiar and like ourselves, um sentimentality idealizes something and in doing so starts to strongly suggest that things that aren't like that are bad so when you idealize a certain part of american history in art when you idealize a certain kind of architecture as nothing but beautiful when you idealize kittens (laughs) you are in for a nasty surprise when you get a real kitten um (laughs) When you idealize the 1950s in America, you are burying and denying all kinds of toxic beliefs and and evil that were at work in America at that time. Absolutely, yeah. I mean,
0: that's the whole "Make America Great Again" for who? (laughs) (laughs) Who was it great
1: for in this? place well, I are trying think they, to revisit yeah yeah i think they found out that's kind of the eisenhower period when they were putting in you know under god and the pledge of allegiance and all that stuff was going on but you know jeffrey i hear you saying thus that you know comparing even the Cohen brothers and thomas kincaid there's more truth in what the Cohen brothers are putting out because they're representing experiences of you know, what, what's going on in, in America. And the Coen brothers are my favorite filmmakers of all time. So you can imagine, I, I really loved your interview with uh, Matt uh, zoller Seitz on on the, uh, uh, that's on your website, lookingcloser.org. When I was a college student and I went to a Christian college, I... I remember you know, I was a big fan of the Coen brothers back then. I, I The first movie I saw of theirs was probably when I was 16 and I watched Fargo, which blew me away as a 16-year-old uh, kid. But, I, you know, as you can imagine, I didn't know what quite to make of that as a youth group kid. And, and I just know I really liked it. It was so interesting. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And in college, I think I got in my head, you know, just kind of the simplistic write off that oh they're just existentialists or they're taking the theater of the absurd and then putting it um, on the big screen and this was back in the early 2000s so I think the man who wasn't there was about to come out and oh brother where art thou had been put out there Um, but I love your your take on them I want to quote a little bit from this article so I thought you had some interesting thoughts uh quote I'm uncomfortable with the term moralist uh, when it comes to the cohen's mere moralism isn't enough moralism is just arithmetic a fool pluses money are bound for hell that's not an accurate summation of their sensibility because look at how the loving and the righteous and the innocent die miserably in their films Uh, and then you go on furthermore there is too much respect for mystery in these films for the storytellers to be mere moralists now I don't think the answer is to start trying to pin a religion on them and I don't think there's any interview where they've ever discussed like what they think or believe about anything but there is um, there's a lot of existentialism to their movies but there is a, a higher sense that there's a right and a wrong and there's kind of this element of maybe divine retribution or divine wrath that kind of shows up as, as you absolutely in their article. And that makes it all very interesting. And also grace as you, as you believe beautifully, right. As well, they, if they believe in anything, maybe they do have this very beautiful belief in grace that comes out at the end of true grit. Um, yeah. yeah. Some of their other films. That yeah. Didn't.
2: True Grit, which wasn't out yet when, when that article, when, when I had that conversation with Matt Zoller sites, um, I don't think so, or either it, maybe it had just come out. I'll have to go was back and that look.
1: Old? Oh, wow. Um, oh, 2010, I think.
2: Yeah. Grit, that Grit, yeah. boy, I love that film so much. I think over time, that one really, really stands up. It's better than I thought it was at first. Um, I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do, you know, like a, uh, a marathon of raising Arizona, a serious man yeah. Fargo and um, and true grit and, and talk about uh, how religious belief uh, is represented in those films in, in raising Arizona. It, it's, it, it's only referenced here and there, but there are these dreams. There are these, these mysterious visions that uh, that high McDonough has about the, um, evil in the world in the form of the lone biker of the apocalypse uh sort of the uh the coming judgment an, an early version of of Chigurh, really from um no country for old men yeah. who actually who actually has some moments that are direct callbacks to the lone biker of the apocalypse um there's this sense of uh, an unstoppable force of evil in the world that is beyond just human behavior but then there's also this this even greater power of grace that that is i I find it so deeply moving how that is represented at the end of raising arizona when these criminals are trying to make up for the crime they've committed are trying to put things back together but they know they've done something that's grievously wrong and a character who's been generally an idiot throughout the movie the father of the child they have stolen um Shows them extraordinary grace at the end of that film and looks at these criminals who are standing in his own home. They were sneaking in to try to, re- spoiler, they were sneaking in to try, to try to return a baby they had kidnapped. He's got them at gunpoint. He puts the gun down. He looks at them and he discerns what's at the heart of their pain. He discerns that they are unable to have a child. He discerns that they were motivated by a desire to be parents, and he feels deep love for them. He sees that they, he he hears them say they're probably going to split up because of this terrible thing they've done. And he says, don't go doing that, at least sleep on it. And then he starts thinking about what he would do, talking about what, you know, how much he would suffer if his wife left him. And this guy who's been, you know, just a buffoon through the movie suddenly turns into this, this saint in front of our eyes. And it's not couched in Christian terminology directly, but you can't tell me that isn't a, a profound illustration of grace. We get something right. similar at the end of Fargo um, um, in in the the, the, the moral vision part. and the grace of 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 marge right and margin yeah. norm in their marriage um yeah. they grew up they said that they say the most autobiographical film they've made is a serious man because that's the culture in which they grew up and they are both respectful and poking fun at it and and i think acknowledging uh that it's very easy for that to become just hypocrisy or just a facade. Um, and uh, that it, you can't come up with a religious system that will will turn that, that will turn life in, into a into a game where you can score points and earn your salvation. Uh, yeah. You have to rely on grace, and that's why I think True Grit is such an important film in their in their catalog. Because in that film, more than any other, uh, they come right out and talk about grace. They come right out and talk about the grace of God. Um, and when the young hero tries to settle things with a shotgun, tries to deal with evil in that way, she pays a terrible price for it uh, and is only saved from the consequences of her own decision to use violence for the sake of good, is only saved from that by grace, by the generosity of a stranger who has been nothing but a buffoon, again, throughout the movie. Um, I, I am so fascinated with their stories. And, and I, often, I often suspect that as is so often the case the art knows more than the artists um maybe the reason they don't talk about it is they wouldn't know how they they wouldn't so often when i'm interviewing filmmakers i will say i love how your movies do this yeah and the filmmaker goes i've never thought about that before (laughs) it happened with chad hartigan this week it um um it happened with Patrice LeConte, the filmmaker who's, who's made so so many wonderful films about moral indecision. you know. And I, I talked to him about his movies and I was like, I love how all of your movies bring a character to a, to a, through a great t- temptation to a, to a point where they're going to decide to do something that's terribly wrong or they will pull back at the last second in an act of conscience. And all of your films take us to that point. Some of them go over the line and the character suffers. Some of them pull back And there's this sense of relief. Uh, And and he was getting increasingly agitated during the interview, as I was saying this, because we we were working through an interpreter. And the interpreter was frantically trying to translate what I was saying to him. And he started sort of looking at the table and and, and talking to the translator and getting almost hostile. And the translator says, "Uh, uh, 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 Patrice says that he does not has never thought about these things that you are saying. Uh, he is not sure that he wants to be seen as, as a filmmaker about morality. But uh, the more the more you point out these examples, this is probably true, that maybe, yes, in fact, I now realize I am the filmmaker of transgression. And as, as, <laughs> as he said that, Patrice Laconte is like pounding on the table, like he's having this epiphany. And I'm like scooting away from the table. I'm not sure what's <laughs> happening and I'm a little un, unsettled by all this. But sometimes... You know, in, in in making art, the artist is more focused on the, the technique and the camera and the light and whatever just sort of feels right. Yeah. And, the and all the happy
0: accidents up... that occur. Yeah,
2: yes. No, making <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: really complicated and it needs a lot of people to do it.
2: <laughs> right, right. That's, that, that's why the conversation is is what what completes the work of art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It's not a work of art until we are sitting around talking about it. Um, 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 Kaim Potok... Uh, said that art is not the thing and it is not the audience. It is it is where it, it, it is the arc between the two. It is where the two meet. That's where art is. Um, I love that. So that dialogue with Mads Saitz seitz was such a joy and such, such a privilege because it was finally a chance to talk with somebody who believes very different things. Sure. Don't get me wrong, right. about the world right. and about life than I do. But that's exactly why the conversation was so exciting. It was amazing. Uh, we, were, yeah. we were learning from each other.
0: I find he he believes different things than you, but he seems very interested in many of the the same things about belief that you're interested in. He's, he's very attuned to films that have a spiritual
1: bent to them.
2: Well, Terrence Malick is, is his favorite. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Um, Wow. Malick has a amazing filmography from a committed Christian standpoint, maybe except for the song of songs and not just for, moral reasons but just because i didn't really didn't really care for that movie out of, I mean, song, out of to song. Yeah. song to song yeah well
2: every song. every malik fan has has that one of the, the one or two that they just don't get and uh, yeah. it, that list is different for for everybody Absolutely. um matt zoller sites uh, will passionately defend every single film of malik's <laughs> wow
1: okay <laughs> that's great um, so
0: uh so true grit hadn't come out when you wrote that so you probably didn't get to thinking about the idea of them doing a, a a remake of, of a classic film and having it be successful. I mean, they'd done the lady killers at that point, but, (laughs) but yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, The less said the better, right? Coen Um, brothers are almost unanimous on that one. Yeah. Coen brothers fans are almost unanimous. When I was
0: reading that and this, and the passage that, that, uh, that Dave quoted uh, saying that it's not just pure moralism and the stuff about terrible things happening to pure and good people uh I ended up thinking about Night of the Hunter mm. and specifically the Cohen-esque language and things like uh, the old lady speaking to the the um, the bride-to-be about the conjugal bed and and saying, uh, when you've been married to a man for 40 years, uh, you know, all that don't amount to a hill of beans. I've been married to Walt <laughs> that long, and I swear in all that time, I just lie there and think about my canning. Uh,
2: that does sound like that seems so
0: coalesced to them and I I remember about a year ago Matt was was talking about oh what what if if there if anybody ever remade Night of the Hunter who would you want to see in the Robert Mitchum role and I instantly thought Kyle Chandler and and he's he said oh I just got chills thinking about the the ability for that guy to have that innate goodness that people would believe he's a legit preacher but being able to, under the surface, be in, insidious. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm I, now fascinated with the idea of the Coen brothers directing Kyle Chandler in A Night of the Hunter remake. Do you have any uh, classic <laughs> films you thought about uh, loving to experience through a Coen lens?
2: Wow. There is a big one. And it would, I mean, even for them, it would be A very ambitious undertaking because i think it would require of them um just a high wire act of tone you know the the coen brothers movies range from the the really wacky ones um to the 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 far more serious dramas um that still have a bit of wacky in them you know like like no country for old men Mm -hmm. Um, um but uh, last year um, was the first time I, I taught a literature class at, at Seattle Pacific. And uh, I took the class through, My Name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok. And that is you know a story of a, a, of a very young Orthodox Jewish boy, um, whose parents are very involved in um, trying to save uh, Jewish people around the world from persecution and um, he becomes an artist. And his, he, he is drawn to the mysteries of art in ways that threaten uh, the um, traditions and restrictions of his uh, conservative religious community. And boy, did I relate to this kid reading the book for the first time and then going through it with this class. I couldn't stop thinking about the Cohen brothers. I couldn't stop thinking about how they have the background to, uh, as they have before, respectfully, but also insightfully and with great discernment, um, uh, represent the culture in which young Asher grows up. But by virtue of their own discipline, their own vocation, they understand the demands of art and how art is going to draw people of any language in any community in any tradition to reckon with the questions that they would rather not wrestle and um i think it's one of the most profound books about the the vocation of the artist the calling of the artist and why so many christians who are artists can't find a home in a particular church um, as i was saying earlier about the you know the my, my increasing reluctance to sign on the dotted line with any denomination because I, I find God moving in different ways within every church, within every um, community, even right in my own neighborhood. Um, in the same way, I think artists have a respect for the elusive nature of the spirit uh, and its refusal to be pinned down within any particular genre and so you've got Asher Lev, this Orthodox boy, painting nudes that traumatize his parents when they see them. Where for him it is a a necessary step forward in his uh, in 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 following his calling and in his understanding of God. Um, that is leading him to a place where he will eventually paint scandalous paintings of his parents that are the only way he can he can speak the truth of what it was like growing up with them, what it was like loving them, what it was like fearing them. Um, the end of that book is is dramatic and in some ways horrifying. Um, but right now, I think it could be, it could give us such a vocabulary. I, I mean, it has given readers that vocabulary for many years, but I would love to see somebody try to represent it uh, in cinema, there are some books I think are unfilmable. Um, there are others like *True Grit*, where the Coen Brothers didn't even write that much of their own dialogue. The dialogue of *True Grit* is is pretty much straight out of Charles Portis. Um, they, I think, the Coen Brothers were influenced by his dialogue very much. <laughs> um, but I think this is a book that that deserves a great film. Um, maybe the Coen Brothers. Are the ones to do it. I'd, I'd be hard pressed to think of somebody else. I would trust more with that material.
0: That's interesting. I, I, it, it's such a, such a beautiful experiencing uh, experience watching a film that you know they have to walk that tonal tightrope perfectly to pull it off, um, and and the Coens are certainly capable of doing something like that. An experience I had with a movie like that, I thought Lars and the Real Girl, it would have been so easy to completely uh, f- fail, <laughs> to completely <laughs> yeah. undercut that movie, going, going one step to the left or to the right. And yep. I thought they really beautifully walked that tightrope. Well, I know you only have a few minutes left. Okay. I was just thinking, you know, you know, favorites of, of the year sort of stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I haven't finalized my list because there's too big of a possibility that Nomadland and Minari will be at the top of it. And I haven't seen those yet. Um, so that that's, that's where I'm at, but I I'd love to hear uh, if you had recommendations of a little bit more under the radar stuff. I, I know that we're both a fan of the, the Irish comedy extraordinary. That's something most people probably haven't heard of where uh, Will Forte is a seventies one hit wonder musician who moves to Ireland for the tax breaks Uh, And is in need of a virgin in order to uh, sacrifice them to a demon to give him the power to have another hit, as I recall. And it's really we rewatched it a couple weeks ago, and it's phenomenal.
2: It it. it is, yeah. It I haven't seen a comedy that works uh, works the way that one works uh, in a long time. It's a wonderful mix of just the outright absurd and yet the genuinely endearing relationships of the characters it's it's got one of the most surprising romances i've seen in a long time um if you're a fan of npr's show wait wait don't tell me um uh the the frequent panelist uh maeve higgins is the star of extraordinary oh, okay. and she's she's fantastic yeah absolutely
0: oh, i know. the the, che- the scenes of of the husband channeling his his former wife his ex yes absolutely phenomenal (laughs) yeah yeah
2: yeah I hope that team makes more movies that was a that's a really surprising crazy comedy yeah
0: yeah the only other like surprising little comedy that that I came across uh was Save Yourselves it's on Hulu now, as mm. as of a few weeks ago. A couple hipsters that decide they need an authentic experience and unplug from everything and go out to a cabin in the woods. Uh, meanwhile, there's a, like an alien invasion that they aren't aware of. Uh, okay, and when one of them cheats and sneaks a look at their phone, they they start to get a sense that something really bad is happening in the real world, uh, and and it's <laughs> it's. Uh, yeah it's it let's see what I forget the name of the the main actor. it's uh one, one of the actresses from Glow, and uh, the the male lead is uh, from Search Party, and hmm. he was also in Stranger things a little, but uh just insufferable hipsters having to having to uh survive with literally
1: no real life skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds fun. Do you have a Do you have a top five from uh, last year? Sure,
2: uh, I do. I'm getting ready to publish it at lookingcloser.org, and it's still subject to change. But um, right right now, and I guess so this will be the first time I've 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 counted it down. Um, uh, right now, in in my number five spot, I've got uh, Shirley, uh, starring Elizabeth Moss uh, as Shirley Jackson, uh, the the author of. Um, uh, the Haunting of Hill House and that famous short story, The Lottery. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is extraordinary in the lead role. Um, uh, so I'm blanking on his name, the actor who plays her husband, uh, Stuhl- Stuhlbarg, the, the guy from... Um, Michael Serious. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Michael yeah. Stuhlbarg from A Serious Man plays her husband. Uh, they have a, a tempestuous, uh, very difficult marriage um, of, a, of a college professor and an author, And they throw these big parties at their house and they eventually welcome this young couple into their home who they sort of manipulate and toy with uh, the way a a cat will toy with a mouse before it eats it. Um, But then Shirley starts sort of connecting with the young woman. Um, uh, There's a little bit of empathy starts happening and that changes everything. It's a, it's a dark, strange, wonderful movie. Um, And while uh, big fans of Shirley Jackson have grave reservations about the way their hero is being portrayed i don 't look at it so much as a biopic as just a really wonderful psychological thriller that reminds me in weird ways of eyes wide shut uh not for explicit uh sexual content but just for the psychological games going on between the men and the women in the film wow. um number That's four hesitant
0: I- to watch that one but but with it ranking so high for you, I'll, I'll I'll give it a shot for sure. And and I actually just watched The Haunting of Hill House for the first time the the uh mm. the uh Vincent Price one uh, this last Halloween. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's Love by it. a, a director named Josephine Decker who who made a movie called Madeline's Madeline a mm-hmm. couple of years ago that, yeah, that got rave reviews and was very improvisational and strange. I didn't really connect with it. Yeah, uh, but this same. one I really did. Uh, number four um, is a uh, a film by the Ross brothers, Turner and Bill. Um, it's called bloody nose, empty pockets. And you might mistake it for a documentary about the last night uh, of a, of a bar. In I Las absolutely Vegas. did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it is to some extent. I mean, a lot of the people in the film are the real people in the bar that they hang out in. Um, but they've been coaxed and there've been a lot of sort of, um, theater games going on to capture these scenes, uh, to create this drama of the last night of this bar. And I just, I was just really um, enthralled with uh, the, um, the realism of it, um, but also the, the nuanced uh, characterization that comes out through these sort of improv performances, people playing themselves. Um, and it doesn't look like the kind of bar I would ever really want to hang out in, but by the end of the night, I was really glad I was there uh, to to share this experience with them. Um, again, another example of how movies can, um, through, through you know, the empathy machine, can break down our fears and our judgments of people and places. Um, really remarkable little experimental film. Uh, number three for me is um probably probably the critics favorite of the small acts series by Steve McQueen um five really remarkable short films uh well short films they're they're an hour to 90 minutes long um, um the the films are Mangrove um oh I shouldn't have started this Mangrove uh Lovers Rock Lovers Rock A- Alex Weedle Alex Weedle Red White and Blue starring and, John Boyega education. And then education, uh, but Lover's Rock is by far my favorite. Um, it's, it's just a very joyful portrait of this sort of house party uh, where African-Americans would gather and listen to great music and sing and dance and smoke and eat and drink. Mm-hmm. And for a while escape from uh, the prisons of the abuse and the prejudice waiting for them outside. Um, and it's just a wonderful portrayal of the, the joy of music. Uh, gave me kind of a new appreciation of reggae. Um, and, I felt uh,
0: th- an, a sense of dread the entire film. Oh, which me
2: I too. I kept waiting saying, for something. Yeah. yeah.
0: I just kept waiting for the terrible thing to happen.
2: Yeah. And, and there it, is a terrible thing that happens, but it's not at all the kind of a, thing you're expecting. But, you yeah.
1: Well, that yeah. scene where you see the cop car and the guy pulls the guy inside, I, oh. yeah, I felt the same thing. I okay, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to come in and just bust us up, and yeah. And by mm-hmm. the end, I'm like, oh, Yikes.
0: I feel. I mean, black movie, black experiences of black people don't have to be all about the terrible things that happen yeah. to them. And well, and if you watch is. the whole
2: series, the joy of it is that much more palpable because you've seen the other movies that are about all the the, the horrors and the sufferings and the protests and the the um, the abuse. Um, the miscarriages of justice yeah absolutely really remarkable um film and uh you called it zach my top two are in fact nomadland and minari um i i have a hard time separating them uh they both seem to take place in a very real world a world i recognize lee isaac chung is one of my favorite filmmakers and i've had the privilege of getting to know him i've had the unbelievable privilege of actually playing a part in minari um he had a script reading of this film two two summers ago uh at the glenn workshop in santa fe and i actually played the five-year-old i i read the part of <laughs> no young, way uh, long, of of young lee isaac chung um and everybody was there just fell in love with the script uh and so i've had this strange experience of watching a movie now where i played a character first um, um but this the, you know <laughs> you this originated kid just pretty- the role this kid is pretty good. He's almost as good as I was as a five-year-old uh, you know, Korean-American kid. I hope he reached out
0: to you for notes.
2: It's a, <laughs> um, I will be sharing an interview that I recorded at that time two years ago when we were talking about the movie About to Be Made. I'll be sharing that soon. Um, I thought it had been lost, and someone found it, so ah, that's exciting. That but it's, awesome. a, it's a beautiful film about a, about, um, a family of, of Korean immigrants starting a farm, and um, trying to find their place in, in this uh, sort of charismatic Pentecostal Christian community. Um, um, much more, I would say, for lack of a better word, access, accessible and melodramatic than other Lee Isaac Chung films. Uh, this will be, be the one that gets him a big audience. And that makes sense to me because his previous films have been more demanding and complicated and in some ways abstract. Uh, and then Nomad Land by Chloe Zhao is, is, at this point, my favorite of 2020. Um, that too, like uh, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, um, it, it's a lot of people playing themselves really in this world of people who live on the fringes of things, driving RVs around and trying to stay off the grid, often driven there by grief, um, often... Um, just trying to escape the compromises of consumer culture, uh, but often, often, uh, some kind of, you know, mental illness or, or just, just fear, uh, ruling their lives. And in this context, Frances McDormand gives what I think is her, her greatest performance.
0: When she um, brought the book to, to Zhao, uh, as I understand right, it. Right. Um, so she, she really connected with that material clearly, um, yeah i'm almost afraid to watch that one it's i've i've it's been my most anticipated film ever since the writer but the i saw the Rider just a few weeks after my dad died and i it was like the first movie after he passed that i left the theater wishing i could call him up and tell him about this new movie that he has to see mm-hmm. um he just you know he he was great at finding those little films like that and uh it was so deeply empathetic. <laughs> wow. Um, it's it was a beautiful experience watching that one. So I, I really can't wait for Nomad Land.
2: Well, yeah, I know you I'm gotta not, I'm go. Uh um, Well, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to sign off in a minute here, but that um I, I hope everybody that both of those films will be available streaming in the next two weeks here. Um, yeah. So that's that's really exciting to finally get to share yeah. them with people.
0: Yeah. I um, was, I was looking into, cause my birthday is coming up in a few weeks. I was looking to see if I could do that rent out an AMC theater thing, like to watch nomad land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's not on the the list of things. So.
2: Well, I you know, hope. I want to, I want to add about nomad land. I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're sort of wrapping up by talking about that film because in, in a way it's about, it's an example of, and it's about a lot of the things we've just been talking about. It's about people who don't want to compromise and live the way the world lives, right? They don't want to be worldly. Um, They want their own culture where they can live by their conscience, where they can uh, be authentic, where they can engage in real community, real human intimacy and relationship. But in, in trying to achieve that by withdrawing from the world, uh, the world in quotes, they lose so much and they alienate themselves from um, other communities and other people who who could really benefit them, who could really help them. And it's about this character who who entertains the idea of rejoining uh, traditional American family culture um, and and has to really struggle with the question of whether she's going to make that decision or not or whether she's going to live on the run. And um, I can empathize, having never owned an RV, <laughs> um, having really never lived alone, um, I can empathize because I, 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 I understand the emotional territory of that struggle uh, to, to find a balance of living in the world, but not being of the world, which is what, as, as Christ followers... are called to be yeah um so it's an interesting uh casting of the same kind of problem in a different vocabulary
1: nice well uh thank you so much yeah for your time jeffrey it was great to meet you and great uh, to meet you if people want to follow you around on social media uh where where should they find you
2: uh lookingcloser.org is is the website where uh, most of the writing about faith and art is um they can find me on facebook uh facebook.com slash jeffrey overstreet they can find me on twitter at overstweet <laughs> so, sorry about that but that's that's where it is overstweet <laughs> right.
1: um, i'm all about it i like it <laughs> yeah yeah and
0: if uh if you ever need somebody to facilitate a a, a conversation with you and Gridanus about uh, the cartoon saloon movies i'd love to have it here oh but man I, you may as well you do bet. it for your own podcast if you want because <laughs> that I, would be a blast that's what i want to see happen
2: <laughs> yeah well there's there's a chance uh that's it's, it's developing there's a chance i'll be talking with the cartoon saloon people on my podcast soon so uh, oh, i'll that's let you know, fantastic. I, know. Cool. I, I was talking
0: that. on twitter with tom moore a few weeks ago and he was recommending uh old animated films to check out yeah so, yeah he, he Great. seems like a really nice guy all right well thank you so much uh a joy to
2: talk to you both uh right. spirits clearly
0: <laughs> thank you well dave uh i gotta put my kids to bed we're gonna start reading Redwall. Um, Red wall
1: nice okay. yeah
0: netflix just announced today that the guy that did over the garden wall is adapting it for them which is great i know jeffrey's a fan of that it was so nice to talk to him i i jeffrey's one of my my, my favorite people on the uh for these matters and uh we were going to have to take him up on that offer to come back. Um, that was wonderful.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, I am. And no, no BS. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, uh, Through a Screen Darkly. I uh, just really love that book as a movie lover and kind of engaging art as a Christian. And it's not not even, you know, it, it, you don't even have to be a Christian to read it either. I mean, Jeffrey is a committed Christian, but he can, you know, anybody can read this book and and i find really unique insights into movies and how they impact people and and empathy and all that good stuff so it's a great read
0: highly recommended
1: yeah yeah so i had a ton of stuff to get to but the time went by so fast and he had such wisdom and insight uh but you know Hopefully, we'll be able to do a part two. All right. Well, uh, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Uh, thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you would, please leave a rating and even a review if you'd be so kind, as that helps others find our podcast. You can find Zach and I on Twitter. I'm at Dave J. Lester, and Zach is at Music M-U-Z-A-C-H. Uh, on Twitter, you can check out Zach's music and other stuff on muzak.bandcamp.com. You can read my occasional blogging on dangeroushope.wordpress.com. Logo and music by the one and only Zach. We will see you in your feeds next time.
0: Thank you for coming down to the VCW. Remember, the podcast is always free,
2: but you still need to tithe 10%.